This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We've got our own scoop this morning and you can read all about it on globalnews.ca. Loblaws would like to get into the marijuana selling game. And this, I don't know if it comes from out of nowhere, but it's quite a story. We have our own Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello on with us to explain some of the, uh, some of the you know, details around it and some of the timelines as well. Colin, great to have you on. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. So this sounds like a Loblaws push to the Ford government, more than a Ford government offer to Loblaws, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, with the advent of cannabis uh, retail in Ontario in 2018, uh, there are a whole host of uh, businesses that are looking to get into the cannabis game, right? It's been five years now, and a lot of the rules are still pretty much the same as they have been on day one when cannabis went on sale in, in late 2018. Loblaws has been pushing since 2019 to allow its grocery store and pharmacy chains to get into the game, right? Um, currently, there are very restrictive rules around the sale of cannabis. Some of that is dictated by the federal government. Some of it is dictated by the provincial government. It says, as an example, you know, you can't sell cannabis within a certain um, distance away from a school or where children will be. You have to have the cannabis, uh, you know, hidden away from the public view so that kids won't be able to see it. And you also can't sell cannabis in a other location where you sell other items or any other business materials. So if you're selling uh, chocolate, candy bars, or any grocery items, you can't sell weed in that same store. That's a major rule that Loblaws would like to see changed because obviously if it wants to embed a cannabis shop inside of a grocery store, well, that would, you know, put a whole bunch of complications in there with these regulations. So they've been asking the government pretty uh, routinely to you know, change some of these laws uh, or these regulations. It doesn't seem, though, that the Ford government is willing to take that step just yet. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's an interesting call to make for the Ford government. I want to ask you about what you think the opposition response might be as well. But you note in your story, Colin, along with Isaac Cowan, this is also a store within a store. So, and you compare it to wine racks. So it won't be it won't be quite like like a Sobeys location near me. You just wander over to the corner, and that's where all the craft beer is. That's where all the wine is. This one would operate. A, this scenario would operate a little bit differently, correct? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's correct, and that's specifically because of the regulations, right? I mean, if if you've walked into a cannabis shop, you know that they have the storefront, but there isn't actually any product in the storefront. So a cannabis store is kind of almost divided into three parts. First, you have, you know, the entryway, which has to be blocked off uh, visually from the main entrance, uh, the, the, the street. So then you've got your retail section where they sell a whole bunch of paraphernalia, but not really any cannabis, and all the cannabis is stored behind a third wall. And so that's kind of how Loblaws envisions this would operate, but a store within a store. And right now, these stores have to be standalone stores, right? There can't be any sharing of business um, with any type of business, whether it's food or groceries or, um, or, or you know, convenience or anything else. So that they're looking to change those rules. But again, you know, a, a lobbying effort on behalf of a company doesn't automatically guarantee them success. It's been five years since cannabis was legalized, 
And it was only in 2024 that the government increased the cap that a single license holder can actually, the number of stores they can hold from 75 to 150. It's taken five years to make that one change. They're probably going to take a very slow and cautious approach to the sale of cannabis. No, I bet. Yeah, not coming to a a, a Loblaws near you anytime soon. I also, and this is just us spitballing, I can't believe there won't be um, pot stores that will be you know, very concerned about this particular news because we all go to the big grocery stores. We can try and avoid it. We can say we don't, but we're there to pick up this, that, and the other thing, sometimes three, four times a week. The idea that you'd get your marijuana there instead of making a separate trip, that's got to concern some independent owners, I would figure, and maybe they'll lobby hard against this. Well, look, right now in Ontario, there are about 1,700 grocery stores, 1,700 cannabis shops, uh, legally um, licensed cannabis shops, and the vast majority of them are independent retailers. They're already expressing concerns that, you know, the government is favoring some of the bigger cannabis businesses over the smaller independent uh, mom and pop shops or what, what have you. And they're saying that, you know, even lifting the cap, allowing a single license holder to operate 150 stores versus 75 puts them at a disadvantage because obviously if you're a small retailer, you're not going to be able to Mm -hmm. run 150 stores. There is the other argument too, right? I mean, if you're in a smaller community like Northern Ontario or cottage country, there might not be the room to have a standalone store, but there are these one size fits all catch all kind of stores that sell everything from hardware to groceries, et cetera. Yeah. Why not? maybe a, a fix or attach a cannabis shop onto there. So I, I, I would I would guess that there is going to be an evolution of these cannabis regulations over maybe the medium term, uh, but it doesn't seem like any government is, or especially this one is, is you know, hell-bent on, on really leveling the playing field. Perhaps maybe around election time there could be something there. Uh, but look, some in the cannabis industry have put it to me this way. It took 100 years from prohibition for alcohol to today where we're on the cusp of real liberalization with the sale of alcohol. Oh, <laughs> so uh, about it, no. Ca- yeah. Colin, I'm slightly older than you. And I remember uh, working in a restaurant when Sunday shopping wasn't even allowed. So you, <laughs> you know, we, but that was 1992. We finally uh, overcame ourselves and allowed people to go to get something important at a store on Sunday. We could go to movies and restaurants. So it, all of these are sort of walk before you can run. I, before you go, what we haven't heard, obviously, just yet with this breaking story on globalnews.ca from Mart Styles with the NDP or Bonnie Crombie with the Liberal Party. I'm sure they'll be weighing in later today. Any inkling, they may question the transparency of it, but I thought they both kind of shrugged their shoulders about like beer and wine in corner stores because I, I think they realize every other municipality in the world does it. Well, Bonnie Crombie would actually be the most interesting take on this because in 2018, she, when she was the mayor of Mississauga, decided that Mississauga was going to opt out of the sale of retail cannabis. And they only recently decided that retail cannabis should be allowed to be sold in Mississauga because they realized that they were inadvertently helping the black market flourish. So, you know, but but at the same time, they have a lot of reservations about where this government kind of puts its chips. And, and why they seem to prefer big businesses versus the small independent retailers. We all know, you know, small business will argue that small business is the backbone of the economy. So anytime that it's a small business versus the David versus Goliath story, the NDP and the liberals always seem to kind of 
a fall on the side of the David versus the Goliath. So that's likely where they would say their allegiances lie, the small businesses. It's a great scoop. You can read it on globalnews.ca. Colin, I wouldn't expect anything less. Thanks very much for this this morning. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks for having me. You bet. Colin DeMello, you can read that story uh, with uh, Colin and Isaac Callen on globalnews.ca. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Zero in right now on those budget issues, and we're happy to be joined as well by the TTC chair and city councillor. He is Jamal Myers. It's great to have you back on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Greg. Uh, I know you won't be phoning in. Um, <laughs> you've got a you've got a more of a direct line uh, to Olivia Chow and Shelley Carroll. But w- what do you see as the benefits of having uh, the public consultations now at this point uh, in terms of feedback? So this budget at this point is you know, the city's proposal. Uh, Mayor Chow will be introducing her budget on February first. In terms of, but this budget will her budget will be based on the response that we're going to be receiving from the public. Uh, what do people like? What do people want to see more of? What do people want to see less of? Uh, you know, I've been getting some good calls from my constituents. You know, people overall, they don't like the budget increase, mm-hmm. but they understand the reason behind it. Nobody's blind or oblivious to the state of the city. Everybody understands that, you know, the city has some serious fiscal challenges. Uh, when we started this budget, we were $1.776 billion in the hole. By law, the city of Toronto is not allowed to run a deficit. So we have to come up with something to make that up. And I think this is a good way to start. People have asked, and I'm sure they've asked you as well, with the upload of the DVP and the Gardner to the province, weren't there substantial savings there or were they not as substantial as, as maybe some, some reports were? That has not yet been uploaded, uploaded yet as part of the new deal that was negotiated between Mayor Chow and Premier Ford. So there's still due diligence that has to go, um, that has to be done in order before the province actually uploads the DVP and Gardner. So we haven't actually seen those savings as yet. What do you, th- is there an estimate, a proper estimate within City Hall itself, Jamal, as to what, what that would be? I mean, I have heard 200 to $250 million per year. I've heard something along those lines as well. Yes, that's one of the biggest state of good repair uh, capital projects on the city's books. So that would be quite significant in terms of freeing up additional cash for the city. I know you're probably pushing um, this. There was a story in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago about this busway, which to describe it to people, because uh, the Scarborough RT was aging, because there was a derailment, because it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's very difficult. And I know you're hearing from it. I know you've got you've got your constituents back on this. The TTC board approved a plan for a busway, which takes 4K of the old RT route and at least could chop some time off for commuters. But you need money for it. And right now, do I have this right? It's not in this current budget. Are you pushing for it to be in this current budget? Well, you know, we're pushing for the province to do their part. Right now, the city is operating an interim busway uh, along the old SRT route. And this costs approximately $10 million a year in operating fees. Uh, You know, this is something that was central to making sure that there was some sort of service between the RT closing and the Scarborough subway opening. Uh, You know, something that Scarborough desperately needs. That's something that's reliable, affordable, and accessible, like every other Torontonian, in terms of making sure people can get to work or school or wherever they're going quite efficiently. Uh, But yes, this is something that the city has, you know, taken up the cost of the design work to make sure that it's completed by April. Um, so we're on track for that. Right now, though, we are calling on the province to pay for the capital cost as the city has taken over the operating costs. Of the bus has the province responded to that, that ask? 
Not yet. But we did put a motion at the last TTC budget meeting asking the province to pay for the capital cost of the construction of the busway. And this is like a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? You get this busway, uh, it means less cars on the road. I mean, everything becomes, in essence, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You need fewer cars on the road. But right now, hard to blame Scarborough residents from driving all the time, really, is it? No. And, you know, what we're doing right now is we're taking up um, busways on Kennedy. There's bus lanes on... Ellesmere, so there's a bus lane on Midland. So right now we want to take some of those yeah. buses off of the road and put them on the dedicated busway. That way we can help traffic flow as well. I got 30 seconds here. TTC funding. Do you like where it's at? It, that's the one thing I haven't heard a terrible amount of complaints about. It's not too much. It's not too little. It might be the right amount. So, you know, this TTC budget, I think, is a great step in the right direction. Times are tough. Uh, this budget maintains a zero fare increase, while at the same time it saw a 28% in the overall bu- uh, increase in the city's contributions. That's about $271 million. So what does that mean? That means that we're getting service back up to pre-pandemic levels. We're about 95% for regular transit, about 84% for wheel-trans. Even though ridership is only going up to 80% of pre-pandemic levels, that means more buses. That means faster service on yeah. the streetcar. Uh, we're also increasing money for security, about $28 million, so that people feel safe. There's more visibility of TTC staff. There's people there to help yeah. people yeah. who are experiencing homelessness. So we think this is a good budget. I think it's a bet, I think it's a bet worth making. Jamal, uh, out of time. Thanks very much for uh, being on this morning. Thank you so much, Greg. There's Jamal Myers. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right. This is a fascinating lawsuit, uh, and it was back in court uh, this time around. Um, In fact, it's a legal process that's been four years in the making. But the concept is at the Court of Appeal in Ontario uh, this week in Toronto, seven young activists um, sued the province. And it's a climate lawsuit. So I want to find out more about it. Um, they lost uh, the case um, in the spring, but back uh, for their, and they've every right to appeal. They've every right to be there and be heard. Um, so I'm eager to get into it. Uh, the lawyer representing them is Danielle Gallant, and she joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Good morning. Tell, tell me and our listeners what the last two days have been. If, if uh, the case was decided in the spring, what are the, uh, w- what are the grounds for the appeal on your side of things, Danielle? Yeah, absolutely. So the the hearing actually wrapped in in one day in a surprise twist yesterday. Um, So we're we're essentially arguing that when the government um, decided to move backwards on its climate ambition and set a 2030 climate target that's completely out of line with science, that that violates youth and future generations' rights under the Charter to life, to security, and to equality because it will cause a dangerous uh, level of climate impacts in the province. And that, those are the main points that we made yesterday in court as well. Um, the, the, the hearing went very well. There was a lot of nervous energy from our clients going into the hearing because this was actually their very first time in court since the two last hearings that we've had have been virtual. Um, and so there, 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 there are some nerves going into the courtroom, but um, also a lot of hope. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, we, we remain hopeful at the end of the hearing as well. Seven females, right? Um, seven young people. Um, we have some uh, young women as well as uh, some non-binary folks. I gotcha. Um, and did they know each other before? Like, how do they assemble? How does that manifest itself that they all don't have their own lawsuits, but they uh, got together? How do they know each other and, and how did this come about? 
So these young people did not necessarily know each other. Some of them did because they're, they're obviously all in the climate activism scene. Um, but what they what kind of united them is that they were, uh, you know, leaders in their respective communities and they all cared about climate and they were all very concerned about the fact that the Ontario government was making this move to backwards on climate action at a time when scientists tell us that everyone has to do more, not less. And so that was really what united them and brought them to this lawsuit. Um, and they all continue their, their respective activism outside of this lawsuit as well. Is this about is this about Danielle Ontario doing its part? You've probably heard um, the, the concept and, and it, it seems backed by data that global warming is global. And if Ontario does this or doesn't do this, obviously it, it may not affect the, the the planet's temperature, that a lot of that is coming from China. A lot of it's coming from India. Companies, corporations need to do better. That's out there. Um, but did they just, like I said, they've got every right to go to Ontario and say, you need to do better for us. Yeah, so that's actually an argument that Ontario has made in this case. Uh, it was rejected by the first instance judge. And um, our evidence shows that Ontario actually has a similar level of emissions to much more populous countries like the Netherlands, Argentina, and Algeria. So it's absolutely not true that they are a small emitter on the international scale. And with climate change, there's also this collective action problem where every jurisdiction could say, well, my emissions don't matter compared to others, and then nothing would be done. And so um, that was something that was understood by the first instance judge. And so those those arguments from Ontario were rejected um the the collective um feeling you mentioned some nerves going into the courtroom and i get that um have there been i I don't want to call moderations along the way but but what were they hoping the end result of uh, of this appeal was this week so what we're hoping through this appeal on on a legal uh stage is um, for the court to recognize that Ontario's target is unconstitutional because it violates youth and future generations' rights, and that the court also orders Ontario to set a new science-based target. But I think outside of the courtroom, we also hope that this appeal continues to you know, inform the public about what the government has done. Um, and so, you know, the public is more informed about these issues. And, and I think that's something that we've won on already. What's the fine line? And by the way, you're more than welcome to say, well, there isn't one at all. Um, what I see sometimes in the media, so I'll call my own industry out, is the concept of some people ignore it completely. Some people create what's well described now and, and seems to be a documented growing trend of climate anxiety. I, I, I hope for some middle ground here where, you know, audiences aren't bombarded with with scare stories. And, and we find a way to, like like I said, do a little bit better than than our forefathers did do a little better this year than last year. But do you worry that there's a generational issue with climate anxiety from younger people? You see people that say, I don't ever want to have kids. The world's not even going to exist in 10 years. Like, do you worry that that's a, a concept and, and almost something that makes it really hard to put one foot in front of the other in the morning? I do worry about it. And it is actually something that we've argued in this case is that youth and young people are disproportionately impacted by both the physical and the mental health impacts of climate change. And so it is something that is um, hurting our youth more than than older adults. Um, And I think it's one more reason why we need to hold the the Ontario government accountable for its climate target, because when on top of um, all these things, you see your government um, not only not doing enough, but actively right. causing the crisis, I think that can be another another source for anxiety. But I also think that taking action can be 
um, a really good way to soothe that anxiety and then sort of channel it into trying to do something about it. I kind of was railing a few weeks ago, so I want to get your read on it on on COP28. And I, I didn't love the idea that a lot of small town mayors were going there for nine days, flying. And most of them flew publicly on, on and not on private jets. But there's still there's still a carbon footprint and they're staying there for nine days. I, do you think conferences like that, like there's an element of, OK, like I said, we want to do better and we want to turn things around somewhat. Um, but there's a little bit of climate hypocrisy among celebrities and politicians that drives you crazy. I mean, I, I definitely see what, what you're saying. And there, there's a there's a, an element of that. But I would say that these international conferences have also been important turning points for climate action. The that we reference in our case very often the, the Paris Agreement, which the world as a whole kind of set a temperature target in terms of what you know, what we need to avoid um, as a global community. And that agreement has been referenced in multiple climate lawsuits, especially from youth around the world, as, you know, the world has agreed that we have to avoid this. And therefore, you know, courts can say that when a target is completely out of line with that, then, you know, it violates rights. And so I do think that um, the result of these conferences Mm. uh, has often been very important and something that's kind of had impacts throughout the world. I appreciate you coming on, Danielle, telling us more about this case. Um, and let's have another conversation at some point. I appreciate you coming on again. Thank you very much. Uh, Daniel Gallant is representing seven individuals in an Ontario uh, Superior Appeals Court, pushing the uh, pushing the provincial government, saying they need to do more for climate change. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. So tonight, telephone tag you can play uh, with your favorite. Well, uh, you only got really two choices. It's either Mayor Olivia Chow or Toronto's budget chief, Shelley Carroll. But uh, there will be phone um, consultations with members of the public tonight, tomorrow and Thursday night. You can phone in and talk to Olivia Chow or Shelley Carroll. We'll see how popular this is. We also should be running a recording of it just to get the really interesting phone calls. Um, April Engelberg may not be one of those phone callers, but we'll see. Maybe she'll be uh, obsessively listening. We'll uh, find out. She joins us now on Toronto Today. What a, what a, this is right out of, uh, uh, speaking of Tom, uh, Tom Cruise's Top Gun jacket, this is right out of the 80s to be able to call your politician on a landline and ask them a question, April. Good morning, Greg. Yes, I agree. I think they're trying to get as much attention uh, for, you know, having consultations for the budget and so on to to put on extra pressure for the federal government to give more money to the city of Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when we didn't talk, uh, when we talked on Tuesday last week, it was a day before um, the city kind of dropped a little bit of a of a of a. I think uh, uh, dropped a little bit of a bomb on the federal government. We knew there'd be an ask. But what we didn't sort of expect, April, was the idea that this is going to be a 10.5 property tax increase, nine plus uh, plus a land levy uh, at 1.5. But that the city would kind of throw that group, that bomber, that grenade towards the federal government and say, if you don't give us X amount of dollars, we're going to have to charge the public for this. And the potential is there for a 16.5 percent tax bump. How is that going over? What did you think when it first happened? Exactly. So we saw from the article in the Star that just came out that basically Olivia Chow is threatening the federal government that if they don't pay $250 million to the city to pay for housing asylum seekers, then there's going to be an additional 6% tax that they're going to name something separate like the federal something fee. Um, And that that's a threat basically that 
uh, Torontonians will be really annoyed at the federal government for not giving this money because now we have to pay this additional 6%. I, I really just don't like fights between different levels of government on who's paying for what. Just generally, I think, you know, it's all our money anyway. It's not, you know, it's yeah. our tax money. It's just collected in a different way. So I find it to be petty. I find it to be annoying. Oh, this is from all ends when this is always going on. I think you're um, right. I, I don't I don't think the yeah. story makes either side look great because these are private conversations. Nobody nobody loves to see people negotiate for money in public, uh, whether it's about politics, whether it's about business, sports, athletes like like do your business behind mm-hmm. closed doors. And that's when you have a deal. Of course, it could get contentious. But especially when people are really hurting like this, this just doesn't land well with a lot of people, April. A hundred percent. And another thing that really bothers me about it in particular is once again, Olivia Chow is using asylum seekers as a political pawn. That's just what's happening here. Right. So imagine the federal government doesn't pay. And then all Toronto, obviously in the end, they're going to pay. But imagine that they didn't. Um, then all Torontonians are mad because we get this extra six percent uh, property tax. It's just to house asylum seekers like they're singled out like you have to pay because of them you know it it, it doesn't it's not it's not a nice way to welcome people into our city um and i think property tax is just a way of framing right we don't see ourselves having like a world cup extra fee even though like we're paying for that as well um it's just to single this out the asylum seekers just doesn't feel right to me april engelberg's our guest on toronto today uh 6 in the morning it's minus 10 currently right now with a wind chill of minus 16 so just uh, continuing to update you on how cold it is before you step outside now you you noted the comparison between uh property tax for where we're at right now and how john tory pushed it a, a year ago at this time this is prior to his revelations it's prior to his resignation and even that felt significant. I mean, I don't think many would argue that the property tax was at a certain level. And probably you look back some prior years at Tory, go back to Rob Ford. Probably it should have been going up more incrementally so that services didn't start to suffer. But Tory kind of even had to bite hard last year, didn't he, to push it up 5.5 percent? Exactly. So although we're spending we're putting a lot of focus right now on Olivia Chow's tax increase it's not that different from what happened with Tory right so he did five and a half plus the 1.5 percent right um, whereas Olivia Chow is doing nine uh, percent plus 1.5 so it's really a difference between uh, it, it's not that big of a difference in the end and I don't want to make it sound like money is nothing because any sort of a tax increase is really affecting people in the city especially people that have had their homes for a long time. But ultimately, if you're a homeowner, I think a lot of the time people will be able to make it work with the additional ten, twenty dollars a month that it will end up being. Um, you, you noted the uh, as well uh, warming centers. There's only four of them, and that was a that was greatly debated uh, as to whether there should be more than that. And again, some of this does come back to money, April. But we were talking even in August and September going using the phrase winter is coming and we were so mild in december like i said people probably saved on their heating bills people could probably stomach it outside you can't now and we're not san francisco or seattle or los angeles you sleep on the street in weather like this you die it's a huge problem exactly so there's 180 spaces for the warming centers across four different spots in toronto and they're already full right so it's just it's not good enough we need more we need more warming centers, right? On one hand, 
were going around and evicting people from their tents. But then on the other hand, we don't have enough space for them in warming centers. So it's like, where do you want people to go? You don't want them overnight on the TTC. You no. don't want them. So we need more warming centers. And that's just only a temporary solution. Obviously, ultimately, we need more permanent housing for these people so that they can you know, live a dignified and healthy life. Well, and you hit on it. We also can't have tents with space heaters, right, or butane torches or, or the rest. We've seen this. We saw a huge explosion under the gardener last year. And thank goodness it didn't affect the gardener above with, um, you know, with, with propane. It's a, it, again, I keep noting it. It's a notable problem that, uh, that doesn't seem to have a solution right now unless there's enforcement. Unless I would say on one hand, yes, I hear you about enforcement, but also a better option for, for right. people, right? They're choosing that as their best option. They, they think their best option is to be in a tent with um, unsafe heating, right? Yeah. So that it's also on us to make sure that there's better options for people this winter. We'll be watching where it goes this week and tonight, April. We'll talk next week. Thanks so much for this. Thanks so much, Greg. There's April Engelberg joining us, uh, city council uh, nominee. Uh, She ran for uh, city council last year, had some great ideas. We love our chats.